This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And let us rejoice in the return of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club, which is back this week. Yay, verily. Yay, verily. <laughs> Getting all medieval up in here. Getting Huzzah. all. Or is that Renaissance? <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> Somebody watched The Great on Hulu recently, it seems like. Aren't they saying well, that, that throughout The Great? I've, that was a word that I always wondered if people actually used huzzah. That's the only time I've really ever heard other than outside of, you know, antique old plays, the actual term. But I always wondered, in real life, did people say huzzah? What, was, what would be the modern day equivalent? Excellent? Yes, probably. Excellent huzzah. Okay. Huzzah. The other one was swoons. Swoons? Swoons would be more like darn it or goddamn it or whatever. Swoons is by his wounds. Ah, oh, okay. Swoons. I thought I yeah. would be more interested in this when I took us down this road. I apologize for, for generating this halting <laughs> intro to our Are you to nodding our out? Excited. I was like, oh, old words. I'm so excited about these old words. Uh, the words that I the old words that I'm more excited about, I think, are more turn of the centuries. Like I think we should say capital again when we are pleased with something. That's capital. Exclamation yeah. point. You mean the turn from the 20th century to the 21st century? I don't know when it was from. I just threw it out there. I had to plug in a date for, I don't know what it, when people said capital. I was just trying to keep it rolling, Eric. I, I would say like last week. Like, I don't know uh, that that's, don't If, know that if that's you're someone who says capital in everyday conversation to mean great, please contact us on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page and you will be entered to win. <laughs> Future podcasts free of Two this kind of exchange. Two tickets for illegal parking. <laughs> Two tickets for illegal parking. We got a lot of crime to talk about. I don't know why I'm fucking around at the top of the podcast like this. We I got know. a whole we've hour got, of got, television. We've got, uh, True Crime TV Club to get to, and you're carrying on about um, ancient entomology or etymology, ancient or whichever entomology. it is. I can never remember which one's insects and the other is words, and I'm never sure which is which, which can make for a hell of a typing session. Ancient Entomology will be a new TDPS podcast that we do two whole episodes of next year. But until then, I have to plug myself, Eric Shawquin, and it's also a good lead-in to the episode of television we're going to break down this week because we are relentlessly self-promoting ourselves here on The Dinner Party Show. But in a few days... And everywhere else we ever go while we're awake and talking. Absolutely. In a few days, my new Burning Girl thriller, Blood Victory, will be available for sale on Amazon. Capital. Set- <laughs> Capital. That's the 
name of it. It is Capital, a new burning girl thriller. <laughs> Brought to Capital you by girl. Tom Foolery and Merriment. Okay. It's called Blood. I just got to get these fucking details out so we can start talking about I real think we could be but, um, more excited about it. I think it's really terrific that you're congratulations on your new book. What's it called, Christopher? It's called I was saying Blood. capital as a as a positive exclamation that your new book was out. I thought it would be fun if it was actually named Capital. No, it's named Blood Victory. And it is number three in the series. The first one is Bone Music, if you want to start at the beginning. They're all available affordably on Amazon. You should, you should. Uh, and you it's really set should. almost in, entirely in Texas. And that is also the location of the crime that was covered by this episode that we're going to talk about in Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. So, well, that's and that's fun. it. That's the end of the connection. We picked a Texas crime. The book's set in Texas. That's, that's, that's a little kinda, fun. But that isn't any, but it doesn't diminish the, the um, excitement that we all feel that there's another uh, Bone Girl coming out and yeah, that's it bone, bone girl. girl that's the name of the, that's maybe the fan fiction weird porn version bone girl uh, in 10,000 BC she was the hottest cave girl in the land and if you were an evil man I'd she hit you over the head with her girl. giant T-Rex bone I think it's a great I think it's, it doesn't diminish the excitement that there's another Burning Girl book coming out yes. called what's it called again? Blood Victory excellent Well, I Blood hope that, Victory um, I can't wait to read it I've actually received a copy of the book itself because I'm very lucky and I happen to know the author pretty well but I'm waiting for the um the uh, electronic version to be available so that I can read on my Kindle because that's so much easier and I'm so blind. I can see it better. So, Yeah. Well, it, it, that is what it will become available within several days of this recording going live. I think we're recording this on, I don't remember. I don't, When's the time is relative date? in a pandemic. Yeah. When's so. the actual release date, Christopher? Do you August not know 18th. <laughs> August 18th. <laughs> How many words are in the book? I don't know. I don't many, many words. Is that a number? Is many an official number? This is we're gonna have to do a quiz on the uh, on the book. What would be a better title for this book? Do you remember that question Capital. in English class? Like they would ask that, and I would be like, "That's a little presumptuous, don't you think?" Yeah. Who like, the fuck do you think you are, third grade English student? Or, it's the title well, that it has. Right. This is the actual title that the author picked. Write your own goddamn story if you want to call it something else. <laughs> Fuck off. It's called, it's called, if you work hard enough, you can name your own story someday. Right. But until Otherwise, then, who asked Leave ya? mine alone. All right. Is this well, I can story about tell. free will or? <laughs> <laughs> what are the themes of this story? Don't yeah, fuck with just, Bone Girl. That's the God, theme. Right. That's the theme. Bone Girl. <laughs> Bone girl, honestly. And then you always come up, you did it by accident, but there has been a habit with you, Eric Shawquin, of coming up with slightly denigrating alternate titles of my books. For instance, I wrote a book called The Moonlit Earth, which was a sophisticated international thriller tackling geopolitical <laughs> themes, and you called it Good Night Good Moon, Night Moon every time you brought it up. And then I you actually bought me a copy sent him of Good Night Moon. For, for his release date, I sent him a copy of Good Night Moon. Yeah. That was lovely. I felt so supported. 
enough about our our. Your mom calls it destiny. A destiny of souls. It's, 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 everybody calls that. Fucking I was going to say destiny a destiny of, of bones, but yes, it's destiny of souls. It's density of souls. Density of souls. Yes, television interviewers. That's right. I went on television. Called that book "Density of Destiny of Souls" too. Rosie O'Donnell, back when she had a talk show, I went on her show and she called it that. And so I left. I <laughs> got up. To I walked out. A screaming show. <laughs> a screaming show. And then Elizabeth Hasselbeck came in and they fist fought for the rest of it. No, that was before then. Okay, enough about us. Enough about us. It's really, never enough about us, Christopher. Really. So August eighteenth. Blood There's victory, that cuckoo clock. The latest in the Bone and or Burning Girl series by Christopher. <laughs> Suddenly Eric Shawquin has to be the taskmaster about my PR because he got the name of the series so dramatically wrong but a short moment ago. Um, okay, are we going to do this? Are we going to do some true crime TV club, Eric Shawquin, or are we just going to keep up with our tomfoolery, our banter, as the internet likes to call it? I think that sounds like a capital idea, Christopher. Let's do some true crime TV club. Huzzah. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. Okay, standard disclaimer. If you would like to have watched the episode that we are going to talk about, you should probably stop listening to it. (laughs) You should go back in time. (laughs) You should go back in time or press pause. One seems like a way more severe reaction. Which is a lot easier and may not cause a a split in the time loop and send you off into an elder multiverse option that you weren't prepared for. Today's episode is from the 1980s, The Deadliest Decade. That's the name of the series. The episode How did title they determine is... it was the deadliest? Because they also have one called the 1990s, The Deadliest Decade. Can, so can you which just is let me it? get through the, uh, the, the, the specifics here and then you can get back to your tomfoolery, huzzah man. <laughs> the 1980s, The Deadliest Decade, episode title, Maybe. Friday the 13th, season two, Episode three. Okay, that's what if you if you're the kind of rude jerk who 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 refuses to listen to our podcast until you've watched the episode, go do that now and then come back and we'll judge. Are you, you. All right, Eric, our, joke our, time. Are interested listeners rude jerks or me? No. I'm not sure which that was <laughs> no. directed at. It was a hypothetical listener. We're so lucky that anybody pays any attention to us at all. Don't you dare be mean to them. I'm gonna give um I'm going to give an insider tip to our listeners about what goes on here behind the computers at the dinner party show. What so we, happens? We, we, no, this is funny, and I think that I think it's funny anyway. We record this multiple is funny. episodes. We'll all vote on it afterwards. Go ahead. We record multiple episodes in a single day because we're very busy bees and we have a lot to do. So they're like in back, Brandon put, has better things oh my do. god oh my god well this is what I'm about to say the second episode we record there has been a lot more caffeine and there we interrupt each other a lot more <laughs> like so if you notice that we're talking over each other a lot it's because that's episode two from our recording day Christopher is the only one drinking black tea that's not true what are you drinking I'm drinking my blend of green tea um oolong and black tea i'm drinking my blend of black tea and crystal meth so huzzah is it is it um is it sugar-free crystal meth it is sugar-free crystal meth. <laughs> all right now now that we're living live sugar-free crystal meth <laughs> Today's Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club is brought to you by Lemon Lime Crystal Meth. Didn't they used to have a a diet drink mix called Crystal Crystal Light? That was what it was called, wasn't it? Crystal Light. Is that still a thing, I wonder? 
It's still a thing. You can I, I, you can so enjoy it with your AIDS diet candy. <laughs> that was a thing, right? That was a real yes. thing. AIDS diet candy and crystal meth um, uh, diet drink. And uh, yeah, it sounds like a lovely afternoon snack. Okay, so can I just ask you, is, do you think this is a sign that neither one of us really enjoyed this episode of the 1980s, The Deadliest Decade? Because we seem to have so much else to talk about today. Well, I, we did really start with an important topic. The release of your new book is big, and I got caught up in the, the festivity of that and the excitement Aww. of talking about that. Also, sweet. I don't know that there's that much story to cover with, the, <laughs> um, with this particular uh, episode, so... Yeah, I mean, I've got some thoughts on it, but it's, uh, you know, it's like less than half of a notebook page. It's like <laughs> He's holding so. it up so I can see it on FaceTime. Yeah, I yeah. have my notes, but my notes, Smaller I than take... Smaller a 3x5 index card. My notes are like court reporting, like I watch with the with the laptop on my lap, and I do practically a whole transcription of the show. So it you often do a much better. Yours are about facts. You'll, yours are talking points about the show, so that we have the characters' <laughs> what are yours? names. It, yeah, what are yours? Minor, uh, minor snarky remarks that occur to me as we go along. For instance, my first <laughs> observation about this episode was: this is a study in bad glasses. That was yes. my. That was what I thought that was my principal impression of the show. There is a series of pictures of all of the principles of this, and it is some of the worst glasses I have ever seen. Also, it was a reminder of, I guess, how big contact lenses have become because that many people were wearing glasses. And I mean, they were awful. These were the kinds yeah. that they got at the um, at the optometrist's office and Clearly, the optometrist had like, you can have brown or black. Those are the choices. Um, and those were, they were some horrible glasses. Horrible glasses. Okay, that's your takeaway. My takeaway is that um, don't ever get married because all crimes begin with marriage. Almost 80% of what we talk about on True Crime TV Club is, is marriage related. It's true. Well, don't get married. I'm going to have thoughts married. about that. I'm going to have thoughts about that, but we're going to have to go. Uh, let's go through the actual um, crime itself first. Okay. And then we'll, I'll use that when we get around to uh, the conclusion. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. All right, let's dive into the 1980s, The Deadliest Decade, episode title, Friday the 13th, Season 2, Episode 3. It is the summer of 1980. That would be the first year in the 1980s, if you'd escaped your attention, Eric Shaquin. Well, it has nation, to be because it's the deadliest decade, although I still think that's up in the air. Like, I don't know how you have, determine which is they more have deadly. The, they have the 1990s is also called the deadliest decade, and it's basically the same show. So pick so, a decade. Which is it? I think that's very confusing. Well, uh, for the purposes of today's episode, we're in the summer of 1980. 
The nation is fixated on the question of who shot JR. That would be a cliffhanger for the series Dallas. Mount St. Helens yeah, has erupted I don't know about in the that Pacific everybody Northwest. Was fixated on it, but it was very much a promotional thing. We all saw those commercials a lot. I'll say that, having lived, having survived that um, that crisis in American culture. Um, do you know who shot Jr.? You know, I will tell you the. That question was actually bigger after they revealed who it was because nobody had ever heard of that fucking character. And he was <laughs> like, who? Who shot JR? <laughs> like, at first it was who shot JR, and then it was who shot JR? <laughs> it was Kristen. This is not remotely relevant to this episode of True Crime TV Club, but it was Kristen. Right. I had it's the same background. reaction. I watched. I read its background. That's what was going on in the summer of 1980, but there was something else going on in the summer of 1980, which was horror movies, particularly slasher movies, were becoming a very big thing. The movie Friday the 13th premiered that spring. Meanwhile, in a little town called Wiley, Texas... I think those Wiley, really started Texas, in the 70s. Halloween okay. was in the 70s, right? The 70s was really where... Halloween is what started that. I'm going to I'm going to uh, disagree because I actually think Halloween is a classier, scarier movie than most slice and dice films. There wasn't an enormous amount of blood. Friday the 13th ushered in the period of just how many power tools, how inventive could the deaths become in terms of who fell on what, you know, that sort of thing. I think Halloween was in a class by itself, but this is a debate for another podcast. That's really that's very generous of you. <laughs> Anyway, clearly I've got a meeting next week with John Carpenter's studio. Apparently. In Wiley, Texas, the scene of the crime, the tech boom. This is another place where I thought the timeline was a little fuzzy. They say the tech boom was coming to Texas and uh, Texas Instruments had opened. But my grandfather moved to Texas to work for Texas Instruments in like the 50s. So I think the tech boom had sort of been chugging along in Texas for a while now. Well, I think what the tech boom was... Um, had changed in the 80s. Like, I think the tech boom in the 50s may have been adding machines as opposed to um, you know, <laughs> Will this devices. telephone work? <laughs> right. Like, I think that, you know, at, at some point, iron was a tech boom as opposed <laughs> to bronze, right? So I, I did a tech boom is a relative thing. Yes, indeed. And that is the takeaway from today's True Crime TV Club. A tech boom is a relative thing. Whatever its purpose, ultimately, it brought a married couple to the town of Wiley, Texas, named Alan and Betty Gore. That's right. Their last names were G-O-R-E. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. She did not sing that, but that was also, that was Leslie Gore. Oh, so uh, we're just a lot of gore in this episode. Alan is it's described as gore. a smart computer tech. Betty is described as emotional and thoughtful and most comfortable looking after those she loves. That is why she isn't popular elementary school teacher. They met in their home state of Kansas in the late 60s while they were both students at Kansas State. They were both working in food services. Uh, Alan struck Betty's family what as a that little mean? arrogant. And standoffish. It was really weirdly handled. The brother, Food her services? brother, her brother said something like, um, "Yeah, I think they were both working in food services." And then they cut away from it. It's like, is that code for you know the? Were they both service? working at Wendy's? Were they both on the drive-through at Wendy's, and that's how they met? Or no, the cafeteria is what I assume. They were working in the cafeteria at Kansas. Oh, State. at school. 
So they were yes. maybe they were um, maybe they were on scholarship. <laughs> maybe so, right? Like work study? No, not work study. I don't know. What I'm no, whatever. Yeah, that's it's that that's not it. Um, okay, well, let's but yeah. So down wouldn't it be terrible to be an unpopular elementary school teacher? I would like to have somebody <laughs> described as that. The kids just hated her. <laughs> I imagine there are plenty of those. I had them. I had several of them. Yes, they were okay. So they marry in 1970. They move to Wiley, Texas six years later. Their daughter, Elisa, is born in the summer of 1974. And then around the time of close to 1980, Bethany, their second daughter, is born. Betty becomes very depressed after the birth. And this is before there was a sophisticated or nuanced understanding of postpartum depression. They didn't call it that then. Uh, people, friends, just relatives. just suck it up. Right. Listen to what your men folk tell you to do, and right. you will feel better soon. Don't be such a downer. Your husband is should be happier when he gets home. Uh, and this leads to the people believing that Betty's depression placed a strain on their marriage. Well, we'll find out um, some more because he had nothing one. to do with the pregnancy. Alan has a new job and travels often for work. This leaves Betty alone, Suspicious, a six-hour drive huh? from her family. Um, Betty becomes very involved with the Methodist Church. They're both very involved with the Methodist Church, but Betty has a lot of time on her hands, so she spends more time volunteering and hanging out with the other church ladies and such like, as Eric likes to say. And And here, Betty meets her good friend, Candy Montgomery. Who's the complete opposite, the polar opposite of Betty. She's like the chairman of all the committees. She's that one, right? The one who organizes all the bake sales and is in charge of absolutely everything. And Betty is sort of much more reserved and quiet. Absolutely. She is described as an alpha at church. I don't know if I've ever heard that description. Wow. (laughs) I didn't remember that. But yeah, that kind of covers. That was the general impression that they were giving, that she was really, and that people found them an odd mix, but they were very close, apparently. Also, I I can't believe we've gone this long in a true crime TV club without me weighing in on the reenactment level or or, and lack of quality or, or quality of such. Um, I would say we've done this show before and the reenactments are spare, largely impressionistic and not really dialogue heavy. So they get a thumb sideways from me. It's October. And I will say the wig work was uh, was very period and uh, seemingly appropriate. Nobody really looked. Nobody was in a wig that was just like, oh, my God, there was a poodle do on that one woman. But that was really kind of accurate to the period. So it wasn't, you know. It wasn't Back really to your all statement on the eyeglasses, though. Back to your statement on the eyeglasses. Were were they the reenactors' eyeglasses or in the, no. the archival it photographs? No, that was the actual archival photographs that were terrible. The, the the eyeglasses on the reenactors were spare. Like very few of them wore any, and the ones that wore any, they were fine. Like it was, uh, Candy was really the only one who had sort of decent archival um, glasses. And she was the only one I recall wearing glasses in the reenactment. Yes, that is Which correct. is crucial to your understanding correct. of this crime. <laughs> we just, there was like, we didn't give a shit. And so we're focusing on all of the like, <laughs> the most irrelevant details. This is when True Crime TV Club goes awry. No, also, this is when the story, there's not a lot of story to talk about on true crime, so we can expand and embroider on our impression of the overall episode. 
Okay, well then let me, let me motor through some of this. Can you tell I used to be in advertising and marketing? Yes, yeah, spin doctor Eric Shaw Quinn. That's October right. 1979, Betty's marriage is clearly suffering, and there's a popular new self-help workshop called Marriage Encounters. And that this involves terrifying. married couples going on a weekend retreat, and Betty convinces Alan to go with her. They feel it's a success, and it inspires Betty to begin planning a European vacation for the two of them. McGarrett and Dano went on one of those. Why is it always about Hawaii Five O with you? I just McGarrett and Dano are my favorite gay couple on television. Are they really? Well, how they're are not they a gay couple because that's how they're written. They were never yeah. gay characters, and they were not together, and they were totally a gay couple. Anyway, they went on one of those marriage retreats. It sounded theirs was better than this one. This one sounded like a nightmare, and it being that it was 1979, I'm fairly certain that it was. And religious, super religious. It looked like a, a basically a church retreat. Um, they show some and archival re- footage from the marriage encounters, and they're, the couple is talking about their faith in God, which is fine, and doing but their vows not, it's not going to work for everybody. Uh, June 13th, 1980. But it apparently worked for them. They really were like, yeah. they were doing great, and they were closer than they'd ever been, and were planning a big trip to Europe. Absolutely. So, around June 13th, 1980, no, on June 13th, 1980, Alan takes a business trip out of town. Friday, Apparently, June 13th. Friday the 13th. That's right. That's our episode title. That's the big, that's the most important thing in this whole episode. It started on Friday the 13th. Um, Betty is stressed out. Because Alan is going on a business trip. We're not told, like, Alan apparently went on business trips all the time. I don't know if Betty got stressed out every time he left. She wasn't apparently crazy about that. They said that factored into her overall uh, depression was that he was away a lot. And so she was stuck at home with two kids on her own. And uh, I think it's also part of why she became so close to Candy. She's also late on her period. And she's concerned she's pregnant again. So Alan, she tells Alan this before he leaves and he tries to console her. But given what we know about Alan in the long term, I don't think consolation was really. She doesn't tell him that she's pregnant, does she? She doesn't know she's pregnant. She's just late on her period. But I think she does tell him that her period was late. Maybe. I have the impression that she hadn't told him, but she was worried about it. Uh, 6.30 p.m. Alan reaches Minneapolis and calls Betty from his hotel. There's no answer. This is strange because she doesn't go out on her own very often. He calls Candy, her good friend from church. And Candy says, after Bible study, Candy went over to Betty's house to pick up a swimsuit for Betty's daughter, Elisa, because Betty was spending the day with Candy's children, and Candy wanted them to be able to swim together. Uh, They also apparently made a plan for Candy to keep Elisa overnight so that the, the kids could all go to the movies with Candy. And so that she could pack, because they're leaving right. for um, Europe as soon as um, Alan gets back. Absolutely. And according to Candy, Betty was doing laundry and watching the Donahue show on television. And that's the last time they spoke. Eric, do you have any memories of the Donahue show for our listeners who may be too young to remember it? I do sort of vaguely. He always had a white microphone and he was always Mm -hmm. running out into the audience to ask questions of the crowd of the guest who was still sitting on the stage. I think he would talk to them a little bit and then go back. It was, he was the, he was Oprah before Oprah was Oprah. He was Mm -hmm. a a really, really big deal back Mm -hmm. in the day. 
um, Oprah's show was kind of a Me Too version of Phil Donahue's Chicago talk show. It was very much modeled on that. And then I think he retired or whether he married Marlo Thomas, he married that girl. And Mm -hmm. um, I think he retired or whatever. He stopped doing his show and Oprah really took off then, but it wasn't, but he was the bigger deal. He was a much more, he was the first at that. And he was sort of the paved the way for Oprah to become who we all know Oprah to be now. Mm-hmm. That has been your moment of Donahue here at True Crime TV Club. This is, you know, and me speaking about history. This has been your history minute. <laughs> Eric's history minute with from Eric. 1980. In Minneapolis, Alan Gore goes to dinner with his colleagues. He returns to his hotel room. He calls the house again. It's now 10 p.m. There's still no answer. Now Alan is really freaked out. That he freaks calls their out. neighbors. Yeah. The neighbors agree to go over. There's no response to a door knock nor to the doorbell, but the door's unlocked. And so the neighbors walk into the house. Okay, and I would just like to insert something here. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay. So it's the middle of the night. The neighbors are showing up at the husband's request at um, Alan and Betty's house. Mm -hmm. And this is my bone to pick with the reenactment and a sizable number of detective and suspense television shows in general. They go into the house and they do not turn on the lights. It just drives me insane. I cannot tell you the number of evenings that I spend in my home screaming at the television set, turn on the lights. There is no reason not to. They're going to her house. The power is not off. None of those things are aspect. But in order to make it seem more mysterious, they wander around her house with flashlights when they could just turn on the lights. This has been Eric Soapbox. <laughs> yes. Turn on the lights. Please, detective shows and reenactors, <sighs> when it's possible, turn on the goddamn lights. So they wander around in the dark, but I don't think the real people did. They probably just turned on the lights. Uh, right. And also it was Texas, so they had both drawn a gun, I'm sure. You can bet that on your life. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. It probably is true. They find blood on the bathroom tile. There's a little powder room right off the front exit. They find the baby. She's okay, but she's hungry and she's dirty and she's crying terribly in her crib. They Red don't and find blotchy, Betty. They described her as. Yeah. Both cars are there, so Betty hasn't driven anywhere. 
And then finally, one of them approaches the utility room door, and he sees that the floor in front of that room is covered with blood. And that is when he finds Betty's corpse. And he assumes that given the level of blood, that she's blown her head off. Just as they're about to call the police, the phone rings, and it's Alan calling again. And what they tell him is, Betty shot herself. He then calls Betty's parents. Because they can't even see her face, really, because she's so co- it's so covered with blood. It's so gruesome. It's, it's a hideous crime scene. He calls Candy, conveys the same information. Candy agrees to keep their daughter, Elisa. At this point, investigators... <laughs> As opposed to turning her out on the street. I know, right? Like that, I was like, thanks, Candy. How kind of you. But anyway, spoiler alert. Um, investigator Defabaugh arrives with a 35-millimeter camera. He comments in his interview that they were so unused to homicides of this type in Wiley, Texas, that they didn't have any crime scene tape. So when he arrived at the house, they had scotch tape hanging across the doorways with little handwritten signs that said, do not enter. Because post-it notes hadn't been invented yet. Exactly. Dr. Irving Stone, a forensic scientist who's also interviewed by the special, he arrives and says he's never seen a scene like this. It's just an insane amount of blood. And that's when they realize, given the blood, that it's not a gunshot wound. And then under the washing machine, they find the bit of a single blade axe. They also spot a bloody thumbprint. Which, you know, put an X next to that. Dun, dun, to dun. And then there's a detail <laughs> which may give this episode something to try to frame this crime around, but isn't ultimately really relevant. In the living room, they find a newspaper open to an advertisement for the movie The Shining. That detail will ultimately leak to the public and be dramatically misinterpreted. Then here are the creepiest details. In the bathroom... They find hair in the shower drain and blood on the tile wall, which suggests that whoever killed Betty took a shower, left the baby, baby Bethany, in the crib, and left the house. The axe they confirm belongs to the Gore family. The autopsy reveals 41 axe blows. There's also a $20 bill lying out in the open, and it wasn't taken, so investigators don't think a thief would just leave easy money out like that. $20 was actually a lot more money then. Yeah. They also speculate that because the attack seemed to be centered on Betty's face, that it was personal. And uh, one of the investigators... Yeah, it chopped out her eyes. Chopped out her eyes. And the interpretation is if you can't have eyes for me, you can't have eyes for anyone. That jealousy, possessiveness of some sort was the motivation for the crime. Alan returns to Wiley, Texas. His alibi is airtight. He's interrogated. The investigators find him cold and detached. Betty's family arrives, and they're also unnerved by Alan's demeanor. He seems very cool and calm. Then police question Candy. And she has trouble giving them a timeline of when Alan called her the night of the murder. And in her own defense, she makes a strange comment when they're asking, why can't you remember what time Alan's phone call came through? She says, I was screwing. And the investigators sort of wrinkle their brows and say, why would she be embarrassed to tell us she was having sex with her husband? No, they were more freaked out that she had told them that and the way she told them, the frankness of they told them. That would have been a big admission to say to police in an official thing in that way. I think they were right. more like sort of blown away by her being like pretty candid about having sex. She was trying to sort of startle them, right? She was trying to throw them off. The I game. think so. 
So they then uh, show some footage, some actual footage from the funeral. And this was one of the few laugh out loud moments in this otherwise disturbing episode. Oh, where they I was, say, it was, there were plenty uh, of them. A Texas Ranger is described as quietly taking pictures of all the attendees of the funeral. And then they show the Texas Ranger in, I'm going to say the loudest, least conspicuous suit ever. It was leisure like a, suit. A, yeah. It was yellow, super plaid, what a, yeah. leisure suit, taking pictures, not exactly subtle. Yeah. You could actually, the, if the, the satellite imagery would have been really clear of him. Yeah. Even then. During the funeral reception, they receive a chilling phone call at the house from someone saying, I killed Betty Gore. The cops are called. They set up a trace. The phone rings again. It's the person calling back. They hunt down the guy. It's a crazy guy. It's a guy who just got out of an insane asylum. His story is a total. But it leads into this thing that's grown up around this crime being reported is that it happened on Friday the 13th Mm -hmm. and it was an axe murder. And was this a copycat? Was this about something to do with somebody capitalizing on the slasher films? The slasher films played a role in the reporting of this crime at the time because people thought um, that... uh, that you know, the people thought that 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 maybe that that was influencing the the murderer right, in their right. choices, and then Hence the, 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 the leaked thing about the ad of The Shining. Exactly, and The Shining, if you haven't seen the movie version, features Jack Nicholson chasing Shelley Duvall with an axe during the final act of the film. So, with no new leads, they bring Alan Gore in for questioning again. They ask him if he will take a polygraph, and he says, "Yeah, sure." But by the way, before we do that. I just want to let you know, I was having an affair with Candy for two years. But um, I started at church, and Candy really pursued me very, very aggressively. And I resisted her advances for months because I'm such a great guy, clearly. Uh, But eventually I caved, um, and we would meet up at the Como Motel at lunchtime, which was uh, close to my workplace. And she would bring... At some point, I'm going to stop pretending like I'm Alan Gore saying all this. An elaborate lunch. An elaborate lunch, which they would eat in this shitty-ass motel room and then have extramarital sex with each other. Although maybe, given the history, you know, the rules that we apply to these situations, the sex was first and then yeah. the lunch because that's, a <laughs> that's detail always I don't the better know. way to go. <laughs> That's right. Once you reach a certain age, you really need to have the sex before you're going to have the meal. Yeah. A year, a year after it begins, Alan ends the affair with Candy, and he says he does so largely because of he and Betty's participation in marriage encounters, which we talked about earlier. So wouldn't you know it, Candy Montgomery is now the main suspect in the murder, and they didn't even need to polygraph Alan, just the threat of polygraphing him or the prospect of it. But they did polygraph him, and he passed. Right. Also, underneath Betty Gore's legs was a bloody footprint, and it was small and most likely the size of a woman's. They've also got... And now, you need to help me out here, because I got messed up on the timeline here. So they've got the bloody footprint, and then they bring in Candy for fingerprinting and a polygraph. And it sounds like she only agrees to be fingerprinted. Well, she could not agree to be uh, fingerprinted, but she she says, I want to ask, I want to talk to a lawyer first. She talks to the lawyer, very clever, prominent, young, up-and-coming lawyer. And he says, no, we're not taking a polygraph. So they've already fingerprinted her, so there's no not doing that, which I don't think you really have the same options about. Not a lawyer, so That was my question. Yeah, But she had been fingerprinted. 
did yeah, by that okay. point, but she didn't take a polygraph on advice of counsel. Um, so they interview her anyway, because they are allowed to do that. Um, and, uh, well, <laughs> well, what happens is there's a positive idea of the thumbprint. Yes. And it matches I mean, in the end, they, their fingerprint yeah. was found in the blood at the crime and, they um and so she gets arrested for uh, and booked for murder and mm-hmm. uh, off, and then we kind of speed ahead. And I will say one of the things I was struck by was how fast this was. I would say this was in two weeks of the murder. Yeah, itself maybe a little bit more, but it was really like bam because they're right. doing and that countdown on the on the show, and it was really she was in custody for the crime before the month was out. I think. Right. I I don't know if this is the type of case today where they would have argued for a change of venue, which might have slowed it down. But it looked like the case happened in the county or the trial happened in the county where it happened. Um, And yeah, three months later, they all gather for the trial. The whole town wants to see it because they're like, how could this church going woman have become an axe murderer? This is you can just imagine the prayer meeting must have just been. We'll pray later. Let's talk about candy. (laughs) Um, It's. My God, I always thought she was pushy, but I didn't think she'd, you know, use an axe about it. Um, Yeah, it must have been quite the talk of the town back in Little Wiley, Texas. Okay, right. And so Robert Ushadin, Udishin, excuse me, who is Betty's defense, no, I'm sorry, Candy's defense attorney, gets up the first day in his opening statement and says, Candy killed Betty Gore in self Defense. She, Betty d- Gore. So, d- so to defend, to be clear, in self-defense, she hit her forty-one times with an axe, and I was like, "Self-defense, really?" A mild-mannered elementary school teacher who would be routinely stressed out by her husband leaving town is going to hit somebody forty-one times with an axe. Her best yeah. friend. Yeah, is, right. It was going to pick up an axe. Meriting being hit with that same axe 41 times in a row. Uh, Alan yeah. Gore testifies during the trial and says, um, it doesn't, I don't know if they said explicitly he was testifying in Candy's defense, but what he says in his testimony is that the, they mutually decided to end the affair. Candy expressed no anger about it that he could see. So then, and we never hear this anymore. Candy takes the stand to tell her story. Like, when was the last time, like, OJ didn't take the stand? Like, the accused never takes the stand. Nobody takes the stand, because you end up... uh, But she's, you know, like, I I expect... My belief is that Candy wouldn't be told not to take the stand. It was Uh her... She was her starring role, and she was not going to miss her, her time at center stage. So, she takes the stand... And she says, this is what happened that day. I went over to Betty's house to pick up a swimsuit for her daughter, Elisa, so the kids could swim together at my house. We were having some small talk. And then all of a sudden, Betty's demeanor changed. And that's when she told me she knew about the affair. And Candy claims in that moment, Betty walks into the utility room and comes back with the axe and confronts Candy, to which Candy responds, it's okay, Betty. I didn't really want him anyway, which, according to this bullshit story, in my personal opinion, I mean, bullshit, bullshit, (laughs) added insult to injury as far as Betty was concerned. So I damaged your marriage, slept with your husband for over a year, but I didn't really want him. It was just something I did for fun. 
So right, because it was dull down at the United Methodist Church, but so it is United is in the title. Candy <laughs> says Betty came at her with the axe. The two locked their hands on the axe, began to struggle. Candy apparently gets hit a small blow to her head, but and with the starts, not sharp end of the axe, and she starts screaming. And Betty shushes her. And Candy says, that's when she snapped. Right? Because, yeah, she was shushed. Because her mom had once shushed her when she was hurt as when she was a child. That is exactly where we are headed. The defense lawyer had Candy hypnotized and tried to suss out her motives. And he puts the psychiatrist who did the hypnotism on the stand. And he says, Candy suffered from a dissociative reaction which is like a split personality, but just for an isolated But incident. just that once. <laughs> so yeah, okay. she became a split person. So she chopped her up 41 times, took a shower, left her baby in the crib, walked home, lied to her husband, and went, apparently had sex with... Went back to Bible school. Left it, took a oh, shower, right. left the house, and went back to Bible school where the kids were. I think they were going to swim after, right? On top of all that that you just said, or in addition to. Yeah. Yeah. Without a qualm in the world. So, who would believe this ridiculous fucking story, right? Well, apparently, a jury of her peers in Wiley, uh-huh. Texas. Candy is found not guilty by reason of insanity. Which I would actually think by reason she was that the by reason of insanity refers to the jury, not to yeah. Candy. Yes. Alan gets married 3 months later, not to Candy. No. Candy moves to Georgia changes her name and hopefully her glasses and finds a new profession as what? What, Eric? What did she become? A counselor in Georgia. So if you are in therapy in Georgia currently, you should demand proof that their name is originally whatever it is and not candy whatever the fuck because you could be going to therapists with a an axe murderer, a lunatic axe murderer. Candy Montgomery is her full name. If your counselor is Candy Montgomery, or that was her original name, you might right. want to know that she was found guilty, not found innocent, but found guilty by reason of insanity of murdering no, with an axe. Innocent by reason of insanity. Innocent by reason of insanity. Yeah. Okay. But she was guilty and admitted to chopping up her best friend with an axe. After best, fucking her husband for two years. Best moment of the whole episode. Best moment. Do you know what I'm going to point out? The best moment of this episode? I am dying to know. They're interviewing Betty's brother, Ronald Pomeroy, and he says that I thought about booking an appointment with Candy and telling her that my issues <laughs> were that someone killed my sister with an axe. I couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe this. I fell off. The, and I'll tell you what. I realized I had seen it before but didn't remember any of it when I sat down to watch it again for this show. And I think it's because I blocked it out because I was so horrified by the result You'd of the trial the first time. you this episode of 80s, the deadliest episode, or I just this murder I covered had. on a different... I had seen this episode, but I had blocked well, it out because I was so angry. The thing that stuck with me, the thing that I really... Um, and this was what I was referring to right at the top when we were talking about it, is... The other thing that the brother says, in addition to going to, um, I would go to the session with an axe. And like if somebody had chopped up my sister and gotten away with it. Um, anyway, uh, but that's neither here nor there. 
Nobody has chopped up my sister. And anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to get. <laughs> don't I don't want to go down, down for murdering my sister's therapist or whatever yeah. because because yeah. I'm upset. But um, yeah, I. The thing that he also says is that the family still, after all of this, suspected the husband. Like, I it, there is a phenomenon in people that I find really astonishing there is a sense of a performative judgment of your grief and if you don't Mm. grieve properly Mm -hmm. if you don't grieve the way people think you ought to grieve you could actually get convicted of a crime you didn't do because Mm -hmm. you didn't grieve the way they thought you should be grieving i think that's really weird that man had nothing to do with the crime he wasn't in the city he'd broken up with the woman like there's nothing and he didn't get back together with you know like he married somebody else but whatever maybe he was the sort of person who didn't show his feelings maybe he was in shock maybe he was shut down maybe that's just who he was maybe he couldn't deal with it any other way but to but to judge somebody's grief based on you should be doing so and so, I just find really astonishing. They did it to the royal family after Diana died. There were reporters on national television denouncing the queen and the royal family for not grieving the way they thought they should grieve. And I thought, how is this ever any of your fucking business? Those two boys, Harry and, and William, are still traumatized about being forced out into the public eye to walk through the streets of London trailing behind their mother's coffin after she died. They were like 11 years old. Um, and, and they're still dealing with the ramifications of it because people had an opinion about how they should be grieving. I just... I really find mm-hmm. that an astonishing phenomenon. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think the thread that's there and alluded to earlier in the episode is that family never liked Alan. And they do an interview with the brother, Betty's brother, early on where he says he always thought he was better than us. And I think that manifests in a trauma is and that sort of public shaming yes. and judgment. You know, and and, and so I, I wasn't surprised by any of that. But you're right. And I, and I think that there's... Um, I think this comes up a lot, and I think the Queen example that you pointed out is really disturbing. But when it is, if Alan were on the stand, if Alan were the accused, and that was part of what was being used against him, it gets even scarier. You know, and like honestly, there have been plenty of times when we've seen these shows where somebody is on the stand, be and that's what they're being like. They're not responding the way they should respond. They're all dry-eyed, not all falling apart, and so they must be guilty of the crime. And it's like. That's not really a thing, is it? But apparently it is. I wasn't a huge fan of it as a movie or as a book, but it's something that Gone Girl definitely explored, like the extent to which people were willing to believe the husband was guilty of his wife's murder because of how he was quote-unquote acting. Absolutely. And and that's capitalizing. I'm not as big a fan of that book or that movie, but... I think it really does capitalize on that same thing, that that no, that performative judgment of other people's reaction to a tragedy being predicated on whether or not you think they're guilty or deserving of your sympathy or support or whatever. Because like, the, I, he's just not... The other piece of this case is that we know full and well the woman who was acting right, quote-unquote, was the fucking murderer. She was yeah. actually the murder, the perfect church lady, all that sort of stuff. So the exterior shell of a human behavior does not always indicate what's really in somebody's heart, you know? And I think 
believing that twisted defense was about not being able to reconcile um, their opinion of her outside with her inside. Well, she must have just gone completely crazy because we know she went to church and she had children in Bible school. Right. And she did all this. It was, again, know. totally a performative judgment. It had nothing to do with the reality of the situation that she chopped up her best friend, hit her 41 times with an axe on some pretext of going over there to get a swimsuit. I just thought the whole thing was one of the most preposterous shows we've ever watched. Yeah, it was really... And, and maybe... Again, I know I always say this, maybe a more complex case, like there might be more there that there wasn't time to wedge into the hour. But I think the it's the thing that this is, and this is the last thing I'll say about it because we're almost out of time. Doesn't um, change the outcome. The defense attorney just completely sort of vanishes from the episode when they get into this wild, crazy defense. His interview segments are just at the beginning to establish some facts. And I'm like, you're not going to question him about this completely batshit hypnosis driven if you are hypnotized and you're a witness i don't know if this is true outside of california you can't testify you are viewed as being uh uh, tampered with and your perceptions they believe can be altered by hypnosis you cannot testify on a stand so if you're trying to and that law may be based on cases like this yeah totally totally all right well Fiery opinions and bad eyeglasses on this episode of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Eric Shaquin, do you know what we're doing next week in our next episode? You know, it's always a surprise to me. I like the, I like to be more spontaneous than you. Okay. Yeah, you do. I'm a scripter. I'm a planner. I'm an organizer. We're bringing back a feature we did a few weeks ago called What Science? Oh, you is that I, next week? We love yes. What Science. You and I are going to watch two different episodes of a show that is less about crime and more about the wacky and paranormal. And then we're going to present the episodes to each other. If uh, you are, so I forgot to put the episode season and number <laughs> or data. Oh, no, wait. No, they're in my show notes. My show notes stand strong. The episodes we will be talking about <laughs> come from Forbidden History. And we're not going to tell you who's presenting what. We'll let that be a surprise. The both episode, the first episode will be Bloodlust, Real Vampires, which is from Season 2, Episode 6 of Forbidden History. And the other episode will be The Mystery of the Giants, which will be Season 1, Episode 9. And once again, that's Forbidden History. Excellent. And also important and very much worth noting is Christopher's new book, Blood mm-hmm. Victory, the third in his Bone and or Burning Girl series, <laughs> um, is now is coming out on the 18th and you can order your copies um, and get them real soon. Yes, you can or instantly um, because this yes, is already if you're reading weird. it on Kindle like me. Yes, because we are actually after, it is over after August 18th. <laughs> or no, it's not. Oh, is it? I got confused. I'm sorry. We, I'm doing five different podcasts today. I'm going to go talk about my aviation podcast next. So, um, Oh, well, that's, I'm glad I'm not on that one. I don't know anything about aviation <laughs> except about that haunted microwave from the last time we did What Science. What Science. So anyway... If you if you haven't read uh, the Burning Girl series, start with uh, Bone Music is the first one, right? That's correct. And work your way up to this new one. You've got three treats. And if you're already into the series, I know you're excited, as I am, to read the third in the series, Blood Victory. Absolutely. Um, congratulations, Christopher. 
Thank you so much, Eric. Whenever your fucking book comes out, before or after this show. <laughs> Thank you. We're gonna we're gonna do less crystal math before the next show, and maybe we won't be quite. But so more crazy. AIDS diet. Candy. But if you like the crystal meth infusion in this episode, please let us know on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page, and please leave a not terrible review on either iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time, I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.